Welcome back to the All About Audiology podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lilach Saperstein, and this is the podcast where we talk about communication and how hearing, hearing loss, disability, communication, identity, oh my gosh, all these different topics, how do they intersect with your life, with your parenting, how does it affect your siblings' relationships, you know, among kids when one has services and the other doesn't. How do we talk to people about the needs that our child has? How do we advocate for them? So that's just a little bit about the podcast. And I am so excited. Today's topic is going to be about how to talk to our kids about being safe online. And I'm so thrilled to invite Lisa Honnold to join us, who is an expert on this topic. And she is very, very connected to our community as well. And the experience of Hello, world of audiology, <laughs> as a parent. So welcome to the show, Lisa. I'm so happy to have you here. I am so glad to be here. Thank you. So Lisa, tell us about your family's experience with audiology and how you got into this whole new world. Mm, yes, it was a, a trial by fire, basically, like so many parents. I don't remember ever going to an audiologist myself. But as I was a mom in our Washington state, I live close to Seattle, Washington, and in our state, when I was, let's see, about 16 years ago, they started testing in the hospital when you have a baby for a newborn hearing screening. And my daughter, 16 years ago, was pronounced that one ear wasn't, was probably clogged up, right? It probably had fluid in it, no big deal. They said, you know, you might want to go get that checked out. That was my first experience with, hmm, I think we need to go to an audiologist. And it didn't seem very serious. I put it off for a couple of weeks because new mom, lots to do, right? <laughs> Including sleep. And so when I got her to Children's Hospital, which is a fantastic clinic, when I, I got her there, she was in expert hands and I found out she had hearing loss. She has one deaf ear and one hard of hearing ear. So we continued on. We'll get to the rest of the story in a minute. We continued on and had two more babies. The second one was completely deaf. And the third one was hearing, is hearing. So we've got three in completely different ear uh, ranges. You've got it all. And it's been (laughs) such a journey. I've got it all. Yes. And I've become an expert and an advocate and a better mom because I have it all for sure. That is amazing. So tell me about that first, the first baby, because that's the one that, you know, brings people in. They're like, wait a minute. (laughs) What is this? And what does this mean? Also, you had one ear and not, and then it was both. And then, so did you feel at that time that you had information that you felt like you had a grasp on what was going on or you were in that vortex of unknowns and questions? How did you handle that stage? It was a couple of months of uncertainty and shock. Like when she was born and they said, you know, you may want to check into this. I didn't believe it because it felt very informal and it didn't feel like a real expert was there and they didn't even seem to believe it. So I didn't really take it seriously uh, until we got to Children's Hospital and experts Mm -hmm. told me again and again, this is her hearing loss. This is what we're testing. This is the audiogram. This is what we can see and started telling me about, you know, potentials for her future. And we've got to get hearing aids on her right away. And it probably took me a couple of weeks to digest that. Yes, this is real. Like, yes, this is not going to go away. No, this is definitely not fluid. I had become really attached to that idea that, oh, maybe it'll go away. But it took weeks to really sink into, no, my reality is going to be different. Her reality is going to be different than, than what I pictured. And I have a lot to learn. And when I shifted, (laughs) I got really busy. Uh Aha. So you, then after that, you were like the notebook mom. (laughs) <laughs> was writing everything 100%. down. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> 100% writing everything down. I love my notebook mom. Googling everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Trying to understand what this meant for us and what, yeah. I just wanted to be able to look 10 years into the future and know it was going to be okay. Five years into the future. Will it be okay? Will she be okay? And what were those questions that you were having when you say that? Like, will she have friends? Will she be able to yeah. communicate with us? 
those big questions. Yeah, what kind of school will she go to? How are we going to communicate? I knew we'd communicate somehow. Yeah. We're highly motivated, but I didn't know how. I didn't know what the possibilities were. Mm -hmm. I only had met a few deaf people growing up and it was acquaintance, you know, like people at church or people that I wasn't truly friends with, just people that I knew in the community. And I, I didn't know what the possibilities were. Yeah. I just didn't know. Yeah. And I think that's so common that like, you know, I, I, like I've been saying, welcome to the world of audiology and you don't really know because it's not that common that everybody knows someone who's been to an audiologist or is deaf or has any of the, you know, relationship to this. And so many people, their first interaction is as a parent. And also in the olden days, quote unquote, <laughs> children used to be identified by their behavior. So here's a two-year-old that doesn't speak yet, or, you know, the kid doesn't turn around every time there's a sound. So people would come in saying, I am seeing all these things, what's going on? But with the newborn hearing screening, which is amazing, we're able to identify the children early and then get intervention early. But the flip side of that is that it's, it's a little harder to believe or, you know, to say what this tiny infant that was born 48 hours ago, you're telling me this information. We don't know anything about this little nugget. It, it kind of puts like, should we trust these automatic tests? And, you know, that whole first year is really a uh, fact-finding mission <laughs> to get both the objective automatic tests and their responses and then seeing how those things match up. So then how did you feel then when your second was born and you were like, okay, I know audiology, I know hearing aids, let's do this again. <laughs> <laughs> again, it was a hospital situation. And this time I knew not to put a lot of faith in the person at the hospital who first said, you know, they wanted to take my son and, and do that newborn screening. And based on the first experience, I said, no, thanks. I'm just going to take him to children's hospital. We've got it all set up. And so that's what we did. I, I still didn't trust the newborn screen just because of the first situation. Mm. And we did pretty much immediately after he was born, as soon as we could get in. And when we found out he was deaf, it was, again, it was a shock. It was, uh, really? We're going to have two kids with hearing loss and he is completely deaf. And I know there'll be similarities to what we're doing for my daughter, but I wonder if there's going to be differences too. What's it like to have a deaf baby instead of a hard of hearing baby? And if he doesn't have his hearing devices on, does that mean he won't hear anything? Where if my daughter doesn't have her devices on, she still responds to loud noises and, and different things. So it was another educational opportunity. And that notebook came back out and I, I made all kinds of discoveries for sure. Mm -hmm. And can you talk a little about when you were faced with the communication mode decision? Do we Ooh. introduce sign? Do we go all in on auditory oral? Some combination we are of both? super lucky in <laughs> Seattle. Yeah, 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 yeah. We are exposed to, we have three different programs in Seattle and we lived in Seattle proper then. So we had all the options available. We had a complete sign language option, ASL. We had a complete C signed exact English, and then we had a complete oral. And with our daughter, even if we hadn't had a deaf baby, we wanted to teach her baby sign language, right? And this was like, well, we want to teach her ASL. We want her to be able to communicate earlier. And this is a great way to do that. So early intervention for her was ASL-based. What it gave to me as a parent was parents in the birth to three category. So I could see parents with kids a little bit older and parents that were deaf. And that was my first exposure in a, a parent support group mm -hmm. where they were deaf parents there advocating for their deaf babies and giving me a window into what adult life might look like what their lives had looked like, what their education looked like, what they were happy with growing up, what they were resentful of, and the technology that was just coming into our lives with texting and things like that, that, that was just changing how a deaf person could, could live, mm. could communicate. Yeah. So that was, 
the decision with with the first one was complete ASL and just dive into deaf culture and understand and and start to start to support her any way we could. That's really special because so many people talk about that when they're in the audiology version, the hospital, the medical model, and they only see that side of it and are not exposed at all to deaf adults and signing communities and people that see the hearing loss in a different way, rather, you know, a cultural identity, something that's part of their life that isn't a loss. And I think so many people don't ever get that experience or only much later in their journey. So what you said is listening to deaf adults telling you what it was like for them. We did an episode with all about ASL at home, which is an online curriculum from Razi and Leah Zarchi. I will link that episode in the show notes. And we were talking there about how so many adults would say, I spent 15 years or 18 years in speech therapy trying to like make one sound or trying to get out one thing. In the meantime, I could have a full-fledged conversation that was visual, that was easy, you know, in this other modality. But, you know, at the same time, parents who are hearing want their baby to be part of their worlds and communicate with them in their language. I just want to validate that for everyone who's listening, that it's not an easy decision to make, but it's really good when you have all your options. And I'm really happy that you felt that you did get like a a spread of what was out there. Yeah. Looking back, I really like that decision. That's a decision I would make again. And, and you and I both know there's no wrong decision and the parent uh, will know what to do based on their values and their family and, and everything else. But for our family, this was the right decision to really just dive in and see the possibilities and, and get an education on, on deaf culture. So do you sign at home with everyone or, or what's the story? Here's the thing. (laughs) Here's what happened. My daughter started wearing hearing aids when she was, oh gosh, I think eight weeks was when we got her first little tiny pair of hearing aids. (laughs) And she signed and then she became verbal and she was doing a mix of both. And over time, the signing has dropped off. And she ended up getting a cochlear implant in her deaf ear when she was 10 years old. So there's been a progression of technology, as well as she tells me when she needs to use signs, and we, she doesn't remember a lot of signs, honestly. But as far as a foundation, ASL was the right way to go. I don't mm-hmm. regret for a second all of the classes we took, all of the time we spent learning how to communicate. I don't regret that at all. And if we ever needed to come back to it, we certainly could. Mm-hmm. What was the intervention? Oh, the yeah. second. Wouldn't you think I would choose the same thing for the second? No, no. <laughs> no each child is a whole new world. <laughs> I didn't know that. I mean, parents tell you that, but you don't know it until you know it. <laughs> so for him, he was born deaf. And when I think about, like you said, Hearing parents want their kids to be in the hearing world. And what I thought when he was just weeks old was, wouldn't it be great if he understood the, the English language? In a, if he never hears it with his ears, wouldn't it be great if he understood it with every single word signed out in signed exact English? And because we had a program that was available and accessible to us, we went to that program for him for early intervention and learned signed exact English and did that with him at home and it worked really well. He ended up getting his first cochlear implant when he was nine months old, which was um, very early for 2006 is when he was born and got a second one when he was almost two. And from there, he got oral very fast and he doesn't sign at home either. He remembers a few signs, but doesn't, doesn't sign at home either. So we've stopped signing. There's an openness to follow the lead of the child and of their progress and, you know, come into it with an open mind and say, let's more is more, try and throw language in any direction that it goes and then, then see what they do with it and what their capabilities are. That's really nice. Let's not uh, forget about your third little boy. And when he was born, 
were you kind of bracing yourselves in that pregnancy? Like, hmm. So I was pretty much resigned to having deaf babies. I thought for sure number three was going to join his siblings. They were going to have this in common. And I already knew earlier intervention. I knew two of the three programs and figured, you know, I've, I've got it figured out. I know what life is going to look like the first three years. I know what early intervention is going to be. I know the support that's out there. Cool. And then he was born hearing and it was, it was the strangest feeling. And it made me again, doubt that it was true. So are you sure? Should we test him again? At what point do we just believe that he's actually hearing? Yeah. <laughs> this is weird. Did you at any point do genetic testing or any of those to try and find if there was a cause that you could know about? I don't know if that's an insensitive question, actually. I, um, I don't know. How do you feel about that? Is that okay to ask you? <laughs> I don't feel like, yeah, I don't feel like it's insensitive. I feel like it's a great oh, question. Okay. There was a study. Yeah, there's a study probably... Our oldest was little, so she, I don't know, maybe 2010-ish. We were asked to be a part of a study, and it was to find out more about what causes deafness. And we did, and our first, our daughter got tested, and none of the genes that they knew at that time, that they had identified at that time, were, were involved in our case. And we tested for CMV. And I think that's the only ones that we've done. We've been asked recently to go back and do testing again, because they know so much more, we would probably get a more definitive answer. So that's, that's where we left it. We haven't done anything since then. Yeah. Obviously it's genetic with two. Yeah. There's so many surprises out there because you like, we, we've, <laughs> yeah. seen, we've seen families where that's actually not the case, you know, where one child has mm. from some acquired reason that during pregnancy or different things. And then you know, so it's, it's always a mystery. <laughs> Our knowledge base is always growing. So over time, you know, maybe even as adults, they might maybe find the answer. I wanted to ask you, because you've had the full gamut, <laughs> first, second, third babies with different journeys, what advice would you share with their parents who are listening? What helped you the most when you were going through those early years? What helped me the most was to get into groups with parents that had kids a few years older than mine, to get in that community, to be able to observe what life might look like, how the parents were learning how to communicate and follow, like you said, following the child's lead seemed to be the right answer. But just being in community with with deaf families, with kids, with parents who are deaf, because you learn tips, you learn really practical, I'm such a practical person, and you learn practical things like get a round table instead of a square table. That was one of the things that stuck with me all these years is you really want a table that you have great visibility and that no one feels like they're on the corner and they can't really see what's going on and seat people so that their better ear is facing toward what you want them to hear the most. And there's so many little tips that I learned from other parents or caregivers that were in mostly informal groups or the early intervention groups that were coming in and just hanging out with us. It wasn't so much the, the experts, of course, the experts supported us along the way, but it was that one-to-one -one connection. I remember one person who was an expert who cradled my son and he put my son's head on her throat so that he could feel it vibrating. And she just hummed to him and sang him lullabies. And I had never thought to just put his head right on my vibrating throat. I'd never thought of that. And I thought it was so beautiful that I was learning and she wasn't out to teach me anything. She just showed me something that was a beautiful tip. Yeah. That's really a great tip about the round table. I honestly haven't heard that one. I feel like mm. that's so intuitive, but I wouldn't have thought of that. Very clever. <laughs> and having I'm not going to forget it now. Yes, I'm going to share that. And I'm so glad you shared that with all the listeners. Uh, good lighting, like that's one we talk about a lot. And I love what you said about having community and meeting people who are doing what you're doing. And experts, this is a thing we talk about a lot on this show, is that you are the expert in your child, you are the expert parent, and the experts are experts in their field of expertise. 
and that's about it. <laughs> and we all kind of work together and bring what we can, but there must be this respect between the parents who know their kid the best and the parents who are going to spend many, 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 many loving hours as opposed to the, you know, once a week or 30, 30 minutes, three times a week that you might get with various therapists or specialists. So I'm a really big advocate for taking that on as the parent and it becomes much more of an equal shared decision-making. Here's what we know. Here are the options. What are you guys thinking? And like you mentioned way in the beginning, which is about what accessibility do you have around you in your community? What programs are there? That's going to change depending on where you live in the world. What is the, the family status where one parent can really do a lot in the therapeutic sense and in, in, in other families, that's not an availability. It really is so unique and every family needs to do what's right for them. But yes, connecting with other parents is huge. And I'm so excited that there's a little facilitation of that through our podcast, people meeting each other at the Facebook group and on Instagram. So definitely come and find each other. Don't do this alone. Don't do this alone. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's like good advice for always, for every area of life. Mm-hmm. Can I give one more yeah. piece of advice? Please go for it. Okay. I love what you said about parents are the experts in, in their family and that partnering together as equals with the experts who have studied and spent years learning what they do in their expertise, it, that completely changes the dynamic and it brings the best results for the kids, which is what we all want. And my advice, if I could go back 16 years and talk to myself with one newborn and I was so worried about particularly her hearing, I would say, relax. I would say, relax. It's going to be okay. Whether it's this path or that path or that path, it's going to be just fine because you're connected to her. You're going to follow her lead. It's all going to be okay. It's all going to unfold. However it unfolds, you can't change it. So just relax, take a nap with her, go outside with her, (laughs) do stuff that's not hearing related. That's not hearing loss related. Read a book that's not nonfiction (laughs) and just enjoy, enjoy and savor because she's growing every day. Yeah. I have chills. It's really beautiful because we talk about connecting to your child as the goal. You're doing all of this running around for therapies and devices and surgeries and whatever else you're doing, sign language classes for the point of being able to communicate, you know, so remembering what that goal is. Genius Steven also is on the podcast. I'll link the episode with her about creating a vision for your life, for your child's life, for your connection so that everything you're doing is in service to that end, which is never an end, but to that connection. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. I, yeah. I've, I've learned so much from, you know, when I actually, when we're recording this, it's like the middle-ish of December. So this is going to be a little out of order, but by the time they hear this, it's probably going to be new year. But in what we're doing is kind of like reflecting on the year, reflecting on the, you know, dumpster fire, (laughs) but also how much growth and resilience this has brought out in so many of us. And that that's true for the challenges that we go through all in every area of life. But what I wanted to say about that is that I, I started the podcast, you know, all about audiology and I'm an audiologist who has so much to say from like, here's my expert opinion (laughs) on topics at the same time as trying to like bring in the holistic family-centered part of it. But as the the podcast has gone on and I've met so many incredible people around the world, like yourself, like all the other, you know, people from their fields of their experience as parents or from different fields. And I've gotten like so much more nuance and so much more understanding from the disability world, from different communication parts. So like, I'm just celebrating this expansion of what the All About Audiology podcast is about, what I'm learning, what I'm able to share with you guys. It's a journey. It's really fun. (laughs) So sorry for that tangent. Let's go back. Yeah. What you're doing (laughs) can change lives because you're helping people. You're helping parents relax. You're helping audiologists and other professionals 
realize that they have spent years learning things and there's a softer way to to approach that so that they can partner with parents and they can partner with caregivers and make good decisions together like you said there you go it's, it's a beautiful thing and i'm so excited for the work that you're doing thank you so let's talk about the work that you're doing <laughs> and uh, okay. we're gonna switch gears here <laughs> like i you know we could talk about these things all day that's what i love to do but i do want to give our listeners an opportunity to hear about the center for online safety and how you got into helping parents navigate this whole futuristic world we live in. Many of us are like growing up, like maybe we had dial up or maybe that, you know, parents are older than me too and didn't even have that. <laughs> and it's like the constant communication, the screens, the, the social media, the texting. Oh my gosh, I'm already flustered. So tell us the story. How did you get to this? How did everything come together for you in this specific area? Yes. It's a long roundabout story, really. I was a CPA for a lot of years and I worked in an international accounting firm and then met my husband and we started a business together and we worked together. And then once we started having kids, I was home a lot more and kids needed a lot of extra help. So I was doing that. That was my job. And when baby number two happened, I realized I needed some parenting classes because none of the tools that I was using successfully for number one worked really well with him. So I, I started taking parenting classes and I took so many parenting classes that I became a, a parenting coach. I became certified and started helping other families. And from there, as, as my kids grew up, I saw ages and stages and they started getting into screens in a way where I wasn't able to see what they were doing. And I, it, it's really hard to supervise screens. That's, that's the problem with devices and screens is everything that your child is doing is invisible. Their behavior is invisible. So I educated myself how I could, and, and I knew about screen time limits, and we had limits, and we had a, an internet filter, which I want all parents to filter the internet so kids don't see everything bad that's out there. But I still got a phone call from another mom to tell me that my child was posting inappropriate things online. And it, I was devastated. I was embarrassed. I was shocked. Here I am helping other parents uh, navigate their own families and journeys and help with kids and conflicts. And I get a phone call like this and it was hard to realize that my kids weren't safe online and that I needed to go learn some more and I needed to find out a, a solution that would help my family and potentially help other families as well. How old was your child when that happened? 12. Yeah. And 12. I, I knew it was going to be young because I want, you know, people to know that like my kids are really small. Yeah. I have, I have six, four and two. God bless them. So I am like gearing up myself for like this new battle that's about to come and it gets younger and younger every yeah. year. Like some of my, some of my first graders friends have phones. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why I'm like personally very invested in learning everything you have to say right now. But yeah, yeah, it's young, even 12 years old. And like being 12 is not easy on its own. Now I had screens on top of that. That's a good point. And when you pause, it made me think, I just need to tell everybody who's listening that yes, 12 is early. The average age that kids are seeing pornography now is 11. So think about that for a second. If we don't have a way to supervise what they're doing, we have no idea what they're looking at, what they're forwarding to other people, and what they're, what they're learning and deciding about life. We just don't know. And that's the piece that was missing in my, my online parenting strategy was the supervision piece and the ongoing conversations, what I call sideways conversations, to help kids understand what my family values are, where the expectations are and uh, what happens if they're not followed. So mm. when I say a sideways conversation, it's a, a conversation that's not based in my opinions. It's based in fact, like I just told you a fact that pornography is seen now right around age 11. That's a fact. So if I were talking to a child and I, I just wanted to start a sideways conversation, I would say something around a fact that was, did you know that adults pick up their phones 150 times a day? What do you think about that, sweetie? Does that seem right? Does that seem like about 
the amount of time that I'm picking up my phone. Guilty. Like, uh, just. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's what your child might say. Or they might say, oh, I bet you're on it more. Yeah, probably. They might, they might not. <laughs> but it's a way to, it makes you, the parent, a little bit vulnerable in hearing what their opinion is and starting the conversation that way instead of, I am so tired of you being on your screen. I have new rules for you. This is how it's going to be. It's a very different conversation to have a sideways conversation versus a, an adult like parent top-down conversation. It's not even a conversation. It's a directive, right? It's, yeah. They don't really have a say in it. Oh, I love that. Sideways conversations. And I, I love also just the whole point of safety, putting it in that context. Like we teach our children about fire safety. We teach them about crossing the street safely. We talk about, you know, how to protect yourself in various situations in life. Like we're obsessed with car seats for that whole first couple of years. And we take it seriously because it is a safety issue. And then once it comes to screens, it's like, well, they need to be in touch with their friends or, hey, we need homework. Like, how could we not have internet? And you kind of have all these like, little rationalizations about this monolith called technology to screens, but it is much more nuanced than that. So I like that also coming from that place of like stranger danger. This is a real problem on the internet. It is. It's a safety conversation. Yes. Yes. And it starts way before they get their first device. It starts when you let them on your device. Maybe you're at the grocery store and you just need to check out. You're like, here, watch YouTube. It's when you hand over your phone, you need to make sure that you have a filter on your phone too, so that they don't wander into territory that's not appropriate. You've got safeguards on there so they can't just download anything. It happens so fast. When they get their own device, it's important right away to have a contract that they know about, that they're involved in collaborating with you on as far as you know, what hours the device is available and if you have expectations around what needs to happen before they have screen time. Just to set up those rules as soon as you can, that's one of the biggest regrets that parents have when they give a device, whether it's a phone or a tablet or a computer, they don't attach expectations from the very second that they give it. And then to try to do it retroactively feels scary and hard mm -hmm. and they dread it. So they put it off. Yeah. And the longer they put it off, the, the, the more trouble the child's going to be in and be exposed to. Yeah. One of the little things that we've done with my young kids is that they don't know any of the passcodes. And like when I see that people as young, you know, they have children as young as my children and they, can open the tablet anytime they so choose. And then it's like, ah, oh, you're on the tablet. And then it's a whole new struggle. But it's like, no, you don't have access to this unless I open the passcode and set it up for you. But that's going to change <laughs> as they grow to try and manage that where it isn't authoritarian, but it's more authoritative. <laughs> when I think about the term screen time, it kind of goes in two directions. One is the screen time amount, the dose, if you will, how many hours and what are they consuming? Like six hours of Netflix, also guilty, just saying. Just the volume of how much they're watching, whether it's YouTube videos or Netflix or whatever else. And then the other screen time is like what we talked about before, the safety and on not to post things with identifying information, not to talk to strangers and accept DMs from random people. There's two different things that come to mind when it's about screen time. So I wanted to know if you have mm -hmm. some advice about limiting the actual number of hours of exposure and then maybe some tips about navigating social media. Yes. This is a fun thing to do together because I think there's really three buckets of screen time. If you're looking at a higher level, like all the screens that we're looking at, including TV and, and everything, I think there's three buckets. I think there's the passive consumption bucket. So binging on Netflix or uh, watching YouTube videos. It used to drive me crazy when my, my boys would watch unwrapping videos of uh, Pokemon cards. They'd watch other kids unwrap these crazy cards time after time after time. Like they, it was just addictive to watch these other kids do this. So that's the consumption bucket. 
And that's usually the one that triggers parents and is like, you know, get off the couch, go do something, go, go do something else. And then there's the, the connection bucket that screens can bring us connection, whether it's a Zoom or you know, social media is a very connecting tool. If we're using it properly, we can really bond and learn new things about people or, or situations. And then the one, the third bucket is a creation bucket. And this is one parents love, the creation bucket. It's where your child is learning coding online or they're on YouTube learning a new skill. And then they're going to show you the new skill. They're going to create something new based in something that they've learned. So I think there's probably three buckets, if not more. I mean, education and school is now a whole other bucket for so many millions of families where screen time has always been an issue ever since we've had devices. But since the pandemic, since so many more kids are virtually schooling, it's gotten really tricky because the child will say, I need to get online for this, this, and this. Parent says, yes. An hour later, you know, they're not still doing that or they've got five more tabs open, right? <laughs> I heard the funniest line. Yes. I got jokes. Jokes for days. Let's hear. When one tab closes, another tab opens. I thought that was <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> I, I don't know the credit. Sorry. I might have seen that on Twitter. It's a 2020 joke. But yeah. <laughs> so tips, safety tips. I know you also have uh, a very practical gift for our listeners to go and download. So you can tell us about that as well. Yes. Safety tips. Well, let's start with delay as much as you can. Delay, especially first phones, delay the first phone. If they need a device to call you, get them a device that just calls and texts. You don't need to have a, a smartphone. Um, the tricky thing about smartphones is a lot of us have a junk drawer full of old smartphones. And typically that's what the child gets as their first phone. It's a smartphone by default because it's free, it's available, it's right here. It's a computer that your child has and they may not be ready to have, but easy safety tips. It's talk to your kids about what the limits are. Set up that technology contract. Make sure that their devices can't download things without your permission. So block the downloads so that they have to ask you and you have the password. They do not have the password. That's a great tip. Screen time rules. Uh, there's some non-negotiable safety type rules that are hard and firm. And then there's the collaborative ones that you guys can come up with together, whether you have a set amount of hours per day or it's per week and they've got a screen time bank where if they wanted to use seven hours in a day, they could, but then they have nothing left for the rest of the week if you've come up with that strategy. Let them be a part of, of the technology contract so that they are vested in it and feel like uh, it's something that you guys created together. And then come back and update it as they get older and want more things. No parent ever comes to me and says, gosh, I wish I would have given my child social media sooner. <laughs> Nobody says that, right? So delay as long as you can. Start with one app and research it in advance to make sure it's a good one to start with. Start with one app. And as your child shows that they're doing the right thing on that app, you can give them another one. Maybe start with Instagram move from there. If they ask for it at 10 or 11 or 12, the best answer is no. <laughs> You're not ready for it. I'm not ready for it. Let's yeah. not do that. And then the other thing that's just is critical is the supervision piece. We can't supervise what we can't see. So I recommend that all families have an app called Bark. It's a subscription service. Just think of it like a cell phone plan. It's an insurance plan that lets you see over 30 apps what your child is doing when they're doing something inappropriate. If they're doing great things online, you don't get an alert ever. But if they're sending or receiving inappropriate texts or pictures, it could be memes, right. anything, you'll get a tiny snippet of what's going on and the ability to follow up with your child and say, yeah, I just got this alert. It's a little bit weird what's going yeah. on. So that you know right away, it can help for if a child's getting cyber bullied or there's hate speech going on or inappropriate pictures. It can help in so many different situations to stop it before it escalates into something major. Yeah. 
as a young mom, I, I would say, and my kids are not teenagers, I try to do at this stage in my parenting philosophy, if you will, <laughs> what I found is so important to me is that my kids can tell me things, even when I'm annoyed that they took chocolate out of the cupboard. <laughs> when they come to me and tell me that, my reaction is so important. And I'm like, okay, this is it. Game time. You know, I kind of feel like the lights are on. And this is the moment when they come to me with something that makes me want to have one reaction. And then I'm like, if I do this now in 10 years and five years, they're not going to tell me that someone's bothering them online. They're not going to tell me about, you know, their new conflicts. If I like get angry with them about the, the little things. So, you know, this is one of those things that parenting is, it's like very hard. Okay. <laughs> Let's just put that out there for everybody. <laughs> There's so many things you have to think about and you yourself are also a person at the same time, you know, in case you forgot. <laughs> so I, I'm like just in awe basically of people who are so intentional, who are helping us figure out how to navigate different pieces of the puzzle. So I'm really grateful for the work that you do and starting to think about, you know, if someone gives you the advice of, hey, a round table is really great. Ensure that communication is possible. Like that's a great tip and you, you carry it. And then if someone tells you, hey, maybe don't get a phone for as long as you can <laughs> for your kid, like put that somewhere in your brain. It's good advice to just like take in. So my question about Bark is when you get those notifications, what would you say is a good way to approach your child and, and have an open conversation about what happened? What went on over here? <laughs> what are your tips for that? My tips are pick your battles. You don't want to have a conversation every single time. Sometimes it's better to monitor and stay behind the scenes and see if you get another alert. Sometimes the alerts are severe and it'll say severe alert and it'll be in red for something, the artificial intelligence, the AI has decided it is a severe alert. Maybe it's self-harm or it's that level of look at this immediately. Go to your child and be honest. This isn't a sneaky spy app. This isn't one of those things that you can do behind the scenes. You need their their buy-in, you need their passwords to make this work. So they know that Bark is, my kids know that Bark is on, is watching everything. And all three of my kids at this point have come to me with their own moral compass and said, you're about to get a Bark alert. <laughs> because they realize something's about to happen that would not be okay with my mom. It's not in our family values. It's not going to make her happy. And Bark's mm. watching me. I'm going to get involved in this conversation. So I might as well head it off at the pass. That's what I love about Bark is that it starts conversations even before it sends me the alert. Look at that. Bark also sends potentially what you might want to say or research or do. Uh, if, if they do send an alert, they also send, well, here are some ideas of what you could do. Most of the time, it's as simple as going into their room and saying, hey, I just got this. What's going on? And they can explain it. No big deal. Every once in a while, yes, one of their friends needs help or they need a reminder about what the expectations are. Just like yeah. offline, right? They're going to need reminders. They're going to need to hear the guidelines more than once. It's not a one and done conversation. This is based in our family values and the people that I, I know them to be and I want them to grow up to be. That's really beautiful. Okay. One other aspect, if you have time for this, because I'm pretty curious your opinion on just in general posting pictures of children and how there's a privacy concern there. There's a consent concern there. So for our family, we've decided that we don't post publicly any pictures of the children. We do send to family. We do send, you know, just not in a public posting type of way. Um, and for me, the biggest one is really the respecting of their agency you don't want your baby pictures to be alive forever and you're going to be, you know, 35 looking for a job and someone Googles your name and it's like potty training disaster. <laughs> like those really drive me nuts when it's also embarrassing, but even regular, like even the most beautiful 
holiday picks or whatever, fall foliage. And it's so fun to see everyone's kids. But I don't feel comfortable with that for our personal decision in our family. So then at what point do you feel like that agency is given over to your child? And you say, well, if you want to have an account, is it private or, you know, kind of looking at all this. And before I let you answer that, (laughs) I have to tell you something kind of upsetting happened recently. Six years old. I like can't get over my, she's delicious. She went to a friend for a play date, my daughter, and the mom of the play date said, oh, they had a blast. They were playing. They were doing videos on TikTok. And I was like, what are we here? Is this six years old? Is this the thing that's happening now? My daughter. So she was like, it was adorable. And the mom forwarded me the, it, the video that they made. And yes, they're like dancing around. They were adorable. They're six years old, jumping up and down. But I did not consent to you posting pictures of my child on TikTok let alone that it wasn't even like a thing that she would even consider. She sent it to me like, wasn't this cute? And I'm like, wait a minute. All right, so go for it. (laughs) What are your thoughts on this event? (laughs) I gotta get my jaw off the floor here. Yes, that was a huge overreach in what should be happening. And it just goes to show that before we drop kids off, before we have play dates, there's this whole checklist of assumptions that We think we know what's going to happen and we have no idea what's going to happen in somebody's else. We think, we think that their values are similar to ours, obviously not true unless we ask. And that's a great reminder of all of the many things that we should be asking about just from an online safety perspective, because you don't know if the other family has a filter on their internet or if it's just wide open you know, if they take devices away or have a bedtime for devices so that devices aren't out with unsupervised time. You know, there's just so many things to ask before a sleepover or a play date, including what apps do they have access to? Will you be in the same room with them? Will they be posting to TikTok or just making a video off on the side using the tools? Like, where are your limits and how deep do we need to go? It's so much easier when you say, let's have this be a non-tech play date, okay? <laughs> Knowing that can't always yeah. be the case, but oh my goodness, that's an overreach. Another place that that tends to happen is if parents have great rules around either not naming kids online uh, by name or not tagging kids' photos or uh, using their, their pictures, Uh, A lot of times it's uh, grandparents who are so proud of their kids, family members who are so proud and want to show off this beautiful family member. And they say everything about that child. And then how do you take it back? And how do you tell them lovingly that that's just not okay for your family? They don't see the downside. They just see they're so proud of their family and they want to show off. That's a conversation too that we all need to be prepared for because not everybody gets it. Not everybody gets that kids have agency and at what age should they take over their identity online? It's a great question. We could spend the next hour talking about it. I feel like as teenagers, they're going to have their own footprint, right? And the sooner that we help them keep their footprint small and more like a portfolio than a chaos, crazy, this is my wild (laughs) days kind of, yeah. The more I would be proud to show grandmother these photos and, and, you know, you have your wild days photos somewhere else if you need to. It just makes sense to have minimal footprint, small footprint, because you can't take it back. Yeah. And then on the flip side of all this, I do want to encourage and say that there are so many amazing tools and you can create with your child and you can do If you put together a video and learn about editing, we did that one day when it was, they're running around the playground and we did the time-lapse and that was like such a hilarious thing to do and they loved it. It helped them clean up because we did a time-lapse of let's clean up your toys. So there's a way to integrate the technology in a positive, helpful, educational, therapeutic, like there's so many things we could do. Oh, and I'm going to also shout out the apps list that Dr. Tina Childress has, it's categorized by skill. So like, what are all the games for auditory processing? What are all the games for phonemic awareness? 
Uh, like speech therapists would love this tool. It's a free download from Dr. Tina Childress. I will link that in the show notes. We got a lot of ways where we can do amazing things with our tech, like have podcasts and talk about this and connect to people all over the world. So it's not all doom and gloom, but we do need to keep an eye. Yes, I love technology. What you said about the playground, that was a brilliant use of, of technology, just to have them super motivated to get out there and clean up. That was brilliant. The best part about it was you were doing it together, right? The worst part of technology is when a kid is in their room doing something totally by themselves and wants to keep it a secret. That's where I start to worry. You know, that's, that's prime time for child predators and all of the, the bad stuff that they get into. Yeah. When you are creating together, when you're having fun together, using technology, that's completely different. And that is a fantastic use of technology. So that brings me to a very exciting offer you have for all of our listeners. Tell us about that. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. I have a free gift for everyone. It's called The Three Secrets to Get Your Kids Off Their Screens. And anyone who has a screen in their house needs this now. And there's a video attached to it and you will learn the three secrets and also get a script about talking about screen time rules and how to navigate the beginning. But if you haven't had rules before, how to just put it out there as this is, this is what we're going to do now. This is the new normal. You will also get a script that has basically why you would want to introduce screen time rules into your family and you'll get your kids on your side with the sideways conversation about screen time rules and why they're important. Honestly, I need a three secrets of how to get myself off of my device. <laughs> I will watch that. So the link to that will be in the show notes at allaboutaudiology.com as well as a full transcript of our conversation today as all episodes have full transcripts and show notes all about audiology.com. Lisa Honnold, I am so excited for more of our listeners to start thinking about online safety, take care of their children. And what are your, just before you go, what about specifically the intersection for parents of deaf and hard of hearing children about online safety? And then we'll uh, wrap up this exciting episode. Yes, specifically. It's even more important as parents to stay involved in what's going on, to look for cues if you suddenly see your, your child not wanting to go online or being very secretive when they are online, hiding the screen from you, um, suddenly only wearing long sleeves and long pants when it's hot outside. There are very specific cues that show that there may be more going on if their friend group suddenly changes or they just start acting different, which is hard because teenagers typically act pretty different, but be tuned in for, for different behaviors and ask lots of questions. Absolutely ask lots of questions, sit with them and you have your device, they have their device. Make it, you know, family time where yes, you're each doing your own thing, but you can kind of slyly look over there and see what's going on a little bit be open to conversation anytime they want to start a conversation and ask questions without being annoying, which is a yes. fine line, right? Ask questions. Yes. Ask questions is also kind of another motto here on the show. We had a whole episode with my husband, the doctor, all about asking your doctor questions and being always open to saying, I don't know, but let me try and see what else there is out there. So yes, let's keep on asking those questions. That's the whole lifelong journey of learning. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm your host, Dr. Lila Saperstein, and this is the All About Audiology podcast.